0: Oh, wait, I'm about to sneeze.
1: Oh, do it. <laughs> wow. That's a good way to start. It's like a clap, right? Yeah. Instead of like the slate, you have a sneeze. Exactly. I feel like that's... I'll
0: oh. try not to sneeze too much. Okay. <laughs> Recording.
1: Um, I am here with Dan O'Brien, who I have known... For too long to mention, we get to that age where it's a little iffy, like on one end, I'm like, "Oh, I've known him for thirty years," but then I'm like, "Oh God, I've known him for like so long, so it's you know I know it's not um, quite thirty years it's no it's getting not there but it's it, not it's it's, uh... it's definitely not it's not thirty years at all. it's like six years, no, but Dan O'Brien is a brilliant playwright. I haven't talked to you in a long time. Tell me kind of your trajectory. You were you were doing your, what, was it your master's at Brown when I met you in, in playwriting, MFA? Or? Yeah, I
0: was getting an MFA, a master's, a master's of fine arts.
1: And you were able to, uh, so after college, you moved to New York. Were you able to make a living as a playwright? Do you kind of work from one grant or production to the next? Like, how does that work? Yeah. How do you live as a playwright?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm sure, I, well, I know it's very similar to living. As a stage actor, anybody that works in the theater, you yeah. know, you really have to cobble it together with, with many gigs, teaching. So for me, it was right in the beginning, I was teaching a little bit with, with my all, all-powerful MFA. <laughs> um, but of course, that's not much, you know, an adjunct teaching gig is is right. um, a very small amount of money. <laughs> so <laughs> I was doing that. And at a certain point, I started leading my own uh, workshop out of my apartment. So I could keep all the money to myself, which actually paid better. Uh, and for the first few years in New York, I had like a long-term temp job where I would work nights mostly from like 5 to 2 or 3 or 4 a.m. at at an investment bank. Oh, and wow. I, st- I, I still have nightmares about it because it was, I got the gig because I, I had a friend at a temp agency and he said, do you know, you know, PowerPoint, Excel, all these things. And I said, "No." and he said, "Okay, well, can you fake it?" And I said, oh, well, I'll try because the you know it was, it was pretty good pay, so I got the gig and I faked it, but that's why I still have uh, nightmares about it because you know you get these bankers on deadline at three a m standing over your shoulder, yeah, trying to get you to fix their presentation booklet or powerpoint show and and I was truly making it up as I went along, but when it wasn't busy. I could work on what I was writing. Right. I could uh steal uh, office supplies. Back you know, in the day when the we things. used to
1: print everything, right? I remember doing those office yeah. jobs oh, after yeah. college. I would just print every email. I was so not used to I'm like, let me print the email and file it. I would file right. printed <laughs> emails.
0: <laughs> but that was great for a playwright. You know, right. I could I could print out copies of my script and yeah. smuggle smuggle them home. Uh but I only did that gig for a couple of years and then got um some better teaching jobs so yeah between teaching and whatever I was able to to get in grants and fellowships and royalties if I was getting a production you know able to cobble things together but we eventually my wife and I eventually moved to LA because you know she was coming up in improv and at the upright citizens brigade you know the only thing that pays less than being a playwright or a poet is improv improv yeah
1: I the improv Ah, the, the pay yeah right now this, I'm, I so, love it. So your wife, Jessica St. Clair, uh, right. who was your college sweetheart, if I recall, yes?
0: She was, yeah.
1: And did you yeah. so you move to L.A. to help her, I mean, to support her, support her TV career. Did writing for TV not appeal to you at all? Or you're like, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to stick to theater. Because obviously it seems like a natural segue to, you know, actually making decent money and getting your writing out there. And TV writing, yeah. isn't it that the writer's medium, like playwrights love TV because it really is all about the writer?
0: They do, yeah, and, and and it's, you know, historically it's a talky medium, conversational right. medium as opposed to screenwriting. So yeah, most playwrights who move out here work in TV. I have never really wanted to. And again, it's not because, I mean, I see what Jessica is able to to do in the shows that she's worked on, is not just the shows she's created. Um, and I have tremendous admiration for a lot of great TV, even more great TV than 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. You know? But I just never, you know, in the beginning, I think it was, I didn't want to be in a writer's room.
1: You didn't want to deal with other it. writers, like you wanted to be autonomous.
0: Yeah. And I know that's kind of selfish. And I knew the trade-off is you get autonomy as a playwright, but it could be years and years before that play get produced. Right. And it could be, and, and it'll be for very little money. Unless it's the one in a thousand or one in a million that becomes a huge hit as a play right you know so i knew it was a trade-off and and if jessica wasn't working in tv i I know i would have felt more pressure to work in tv just to make to make a living oh
1: interesting okay well i always feel like i totally understand where you're coming from because i have i mean i love collaboration when i'm working on a show but the writing process i always felt like i worked with two people or three people over the years i was compromising Just to compromise because I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to compromise on this because this person wants the character to do this now. Right. I'm like, well, why am I compromising on this? Like, you know, just because I just for the for the principle of it as opposed to for the artistic integrity, which also happens sometimes, but usually I'm like, this seems like a weird. So I can't imagine a writers' room where you have like a committee of twelve people.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, it seemed like if if you could be the showrunner, if you could create the show, that's a different scenario. Uh, As an early to mid-career playwright usually you have to be a, a, on staff for several seasons maybe different shows before you're able to sell your own show so I just didn't want to really I never committed to going down that road you know yeah but all of these things are provisional I mean Jessica and I during the, the height of the pandemic wrote a pilot together so you know it's not again there's I don't have any sort of artistic moral ethical um problem <laughs> with tv it has more to do with just just the nature of my talent my creativity you know when i'm not writing plays i'm writing poetry which i've enjoyed um especially in los angeles telling people you know we go to a party or something and they assume oh you're (laughs) yeah well they they assume if you're a playwright in la you work for tv and i said well no you know i actually write when i'm not writing plays i write poetry and i just love that mixture of of um they look both impressed and like really
1: sad for me at the same time. You know? <laughs> they probably and don't confused. believe you too. It's like everyone coming uh, in from yeah, like Minnesota yeah, exactly. going, I'm an actor. I'm like, Oh, where did you train? Right. You know, YouTube. Right. So it's like, okay. Right.
0: Or sometimes I used to get, if you said poetry, they'd say, Oh really? How much, you know, how much do you make for that? <laughs> and uh, for like a
1: dollar a line. Thank you so yeah, much. And for a
0: while I would just, I would just lie. I'd say, well, you know, low, low six figures. <laughs> and, just uh, sold a poem
1: for 50 K. To, yeah. yeah, to Poetry Weekly. You know you know how it is. Yeah,
0: because the only thing that makes less money than comedy improv is poetry. Exactly. So, I know.
1: feel like we're slowly descending. So let's talk about cancer. I think that's a perfect segue. Sure. Um, okay. I saw... <laughs> so years ago, I don't know how long ago this happened, I remember talking to somebody that w- went to Brown with, and I think your name came up. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, you know, yeah, Dan got diagnosed with cancer and his wife got diagnosed with cancer. I'm like, what the fuck? So... Mm-hmm. I saw yeah. that you, wrote, you guys wrote a book together, which I love. First of all, I'm happy that you're both here with us. And um, I want to hear all about Thank this because they do not know the details. And the book was, is called Our Cancers, correct?
0: Yeah, that's actually, we didn't write it together. That's actually a collection of poetry by me. Oh. Um, and it's just about the fact that the two of us had consecutive, I mean, seamlessly <clears throat> consecutive cancer treatments. So Jessica was first diagnosed in uh, September 2015. Okay. Uh and started treatment right away. And then six months later, March of 2016, I was diagnosed. So she was diagnosed with stage two B breast cancer. Okay. And I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer, which is, is, you know, they told me at the time treatable and even curable. I'm I'm touching wood as I say that as I have been for many years now. And since treatment, she and I both continue to to have no evidence of disease which is, again, I should touch wood.
1: I'm knocking that. all over the place. You're talking to a Jew yeah, here. So yeah. I've touched every exactly. item of furniture in my home right now under the under three. I mean,
0: you know, colon cancer is so prevalent and it's an yeah. epidemic among younger people. You know, it used to be a disease of age. So, right. you know, people would get it in their 60s or 70s or something. And they're seeing so many people now getting it in their 30s and 40s. And I was 42 when I was diagnosed. And they don't, you know, my doctors are at least they call it an epidemic, but they, they don't know why. Uh, mm. So, obviously, there must be something going on environmentally, yeah. uh, diet, who knows. You know, Jessica and I also have suspicions because we lived near, very close to the World Trade Center on 9 11 and for months right. afterwards. Uh, and there, there's a documented significant spike in cancers, especially breast and colon cancer for people. Um, that lived in that area. Oh,
1: I didn't. I didn't. I thought that it was lo- primarily long, I just thought due to the, you know, obviously. Yeah. No.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know. I don't know. There may be more of that, but I do know right. that, that, that breast and, and colon cancer are. Um, That's connected. like a nice
1: duo, like breast and colon. I just had a colonoscopy two weeks ago. Those are fun. That was oh, my congratulations. third. Congratulations! It's great. <laughs> I, the prep, the prep in Israel, they're a little. I, I, kept, I kept, I've never said this about Israelis, but the prep was more gentle in Israel. Oh really? My previous colonoscopies, yeah, I think, and I don't. We can get graphic for just a moment, and then I want to hear sure. how you kind of discovered it. But in the past, they would give me that prep for those that haven't had the joys yet. You know, you drink that insane amount of horrible liquid, um, yeah. and then you're just on the toilet for like nine hours, shitting your brains out, watching movies, sure. and great. Sure. And then if you're not clean enough, they can't do the like they judge you right. You right. can't do the procedure. So right. here, they pretty much starved me for three days. So hmm. I started. That yeah, I guess it did help, but you know, I still had to drink that horrible crap, but um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I was definitely clean. Like by the end of it, I felt like transparent inside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um which I've was- never
0: had to be sent sent home from my my prep. I feel lucky about that cuz that would be
1: That's a, a bummer, man. That's a bummer yeah. prepping and then being sent back. So did you did you discover were you diagnosed because of a routine colonoscopy or did you have feels like what was
0: No, I had symptoms and it, what was it, it, you know i delayed getting it figured out because we were in the middle of jessica's treatment oh fuck, so on, right. on one right. hand i was like what are the chances that yeah. this is something serious right like that uh of course now since then we've met lots of people lots of couples you know who've had yeah. concurrent or overlapping mm. cancers um and often breast and colon because those are the two two of the most common forms of cancer right you know So that was part of it. I'd also had not to be too graphic, but it's very common for people who are diagnosed with colon cancer. You know, I I grew up having like a nervous digestive. Yes. So under in periods of stress, you know, I would have, I guess, things that could be construed as symptoms. Yeah. So that was part of it, too, because I, you know, while Jessica was in treatment, it certainly was a period of high stress. You know, that said, I didn't delay it that long. I don't know if it really would have made a difference in terms of what stage i was diagnosed at but uh and interestingly since treatment since uh surgery i was lucky enough i mean within the context of very bad luck she and i've had very good luck you know in the sense that you know my for example my large intestine could be uh resection in such a way that I, i i i don't need a I don't need a colostomy bag. Right,
1: right, I'm right.
0: Perfect. I'm perfectly functional. I just don't have about seven inches of my large intestines.
1: Who needs those nobody needs those seven inches. I'm in a I'm in a little Facebook messenger group for years <laughs> now. We call ourselves the semicolon
0: club. Uh, because <laughs> we're all we're all survivors of colon cancer of, of around the same age. So so I was diagnosed officially on the last day of uh, Jessica's treatments. You no, know, and that way it was kind of uh, just bizarre and yeah. um, completely unfair to her especially it seemed like although I wasn't exactly thrilled myself <laughs> <laughs> but you know she had she she had to transition right away from being the patient to being a caregiver and I was able to benefit from her uh, being a kind of coach you know to me mm. through chemo in a way that you know she didn't have she had other friends and people that were helping her in that regard Uh, But I feel lucky that, you know, when I was having dark days during chemotherapy to have her saying, okay, I felt that way. Right. Six months ago. And this is how it was for me. And this is how it changed. And this is how it got better. or just seeing her in the weeks and months after her treatment ended, come back to a state of health. I mean, that was hugely
1: personality wise. Do you guys have similar dispositions in terms of when you deal with stress or when something scary happens, do you act out? Do you lash out? Or is it mostly internal and contained and like, how are you guys similar or different?
0: I don't know. I mean, I think in many ways we're different. She's much more, I mean, in some ways it's the cliched actor writer divide, you know what I mean? She's much more um, extroverted. She's much more uh, liable to act out in good ways and bad ways. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good, good ways being that like, you know, when she was diagnosed and I was diagnosed, you you couldn't get her off the phone calling everywhere to find the best doctors, the best Mm -hmm. surgeons, the best treatment. And yeah, I'm probably more apt to take a stoic, you know, introverts approach to the situation. I mean, I think we both consider ourselves uh, fighters and we, we tend to, I think, find courage when we feel we need it. Um, but yeah, I tend to I tend to take it more like I gotta do this on my own, where she's much better at reaching out to people. Right. And that helped us both. The fact that and this is also probably part of a stereotypical male-female difference, you know. Um, the fact that she has such a strong network of friends uh was a huge help to both of us. Yeah. At the moment she was diagnosed, there was like a food train set up that was gonna last for like the next seven months or something.
1: Wow. (laughs) I always think about that stuff because I actually don't have a huge network of friends and like dealing with my mom now was very challenging because I didn't really have a lot of help and my family kind of wasn't as present as I'd like them to be, my cousins and things like that. But in LA, I lived kind of an isolated life in a lot of ways. And I was like, yeah, if God forbid something happens, I mean, I also feel uncomfortable kind of burdened because I feel like everybody's dealing with something. And I'm not right. good at asking for help. And I kind of, you know, and I think about that. I'm like, wow, I envy those people that have that kind of friend family that just show up. And what would happen if I, I did maybe I'd be I'm pleasantly surprised, way. but I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think you would. I think you probably would be. Like, I, I hear you completely. And I do think LA can feel like, a um, can be an isolating place. Yeah. For a lot of reasons, for a lot of people. Um, and I think, you know, Jessica's just always had, I mean, aside from her comedic talent, she has a talent for friendship, you know, mm. that I've always admired, you know, and I probably unconsciously connected to because, because of my introverted yeah. uh, tendencies, you know, um, hoping that we would kind of balance each other out. And of course at times, we're, you know, our different approaches wouldn't complement each other. It's, it's not that we always yeah. you know, fully complement each other. Um, there are times when she would like me to be more like her and I'd like her to be more like me but I, I think overall we were lucky to have have each other because I you know I do think I helped her w- with sort of the emotions and what she was going through psychologically when she was in treatment and uh, just like she helped me with more practical aspects mm. of what we were going through I mean I, I was the one not to take too much credit for it but I was the one that Said to her right away, like you, you have to write about this. She was writing and starring in and producing the third season of this uh comedy on USA called Playing House. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I really felt like you, she's got a you know, these characters in, in the show were very much a version of her and it's her writing partner, Lennon Parham. And uh, you know, my approach when things like this happen throughout my entire life uh, is to use art as a way to um get through it you know as a way to create something that's elevated or sublimated from the experience of of chaos something that can connect to other people you know that can that yeah. can. so she did that so there's earth the third season of her show her character is diagnosed with breast cancer and goes through treatment and, and still a comedy so anyway that's all to say that i think i hope we helped each other in complementary ways
1: It sounds like it sounds like you have a very strong relationship. It's interesting with the way you said it. You phrased it very beautifully about turning. You know, obviously we have to bring our own experiences, and especially the more traumatic or challenging ones. But I found, you know, my mom, like as I mentioned to you earlier, had a stroke and and now dealing with dementia, and it has been extremely challenging. And for a while, I was really deep in it, and I'm still in it. And I'm, it's still very mm-hmm. raw emotionally and i wrote yeah. about it i started writing essays and then i wrote a one-woman show and then i performed the one-woman show and and i everyone's like oh is it cathartic and i'm like no it is not cathartic mm-hmm. because i'm still living this pain mm-hmm. i am just kind of reliving the traumatic she had the stroke while she was talking to me on video chat so i was mm-hmm. in la and she was in israel mm-hmm. and i'm like witnessing this and i got to get the ambulance oh, there on. somehow I mean, and then I came over here. So it was all this stuff that I was yeah. dealing with and I was just staying in this space. And I really mm-hmm. felt that I was just doing a service because, you know, I I was sharing the story with others and people are dealing with a lot of love, taking care of loved ones and aging and Alzheimer's mm-hmm. and dementia. And so... It really is to help resonate with others because I felt very isolated and alone dealing with it, especially when you're caretaking someone with dementia. It really is kind of a one-sided endeavor. You know, you're know, you dealing with someone who's kind of checked out. So, right. But I didn't, after a while, I'm like, I have to kind of, I don't want to make a career out of the trauma, but I also have to be careful because it's keeping me in a very dark place, mm-hmm. You know, even in my free time. Like when I'm not with my mom and I'm not dealing with that pain or I'm not dealing with the bureaucracy mm-hmm. or all that, I'm writing about it and I'm like, I got to take time to write something dumb or about me Mm -hmm. wanting to get laid. You know what I mean? Just like something Mm -hmm. or just get laid, which is also an option. So (laughs) did did you find, I mean, I guess you guys were going obviously through something different because you're kind of working towards a place of healing and hope and recovery. And when you're dealing with something like this, it's only downhill from here. And it's more of just like, you know, accepting the reality um, with something like this. So I wanted to like your experience, did you find it, cathartic at all to write po- you know the poetry, or what was your experience like?
0: Yeah, catharsis isn't quite the right word for me. I mean, it, it's certainly to some degree therapeutic. It, you know, because you're doing something that feels constructive and controlling of, of an experience that is uncontrollable, that is terrifying you know, even if you're writing down something that might be disturbing to somebody to read, you're still creating a a form of beauty, I I think. And so that's consoling, you know, so there is something self soothing and consoling about the process. And then I think it's desensitizing in a way Mm -hmm. that is helpful, you know, it becomes less, uh, less dramatic. It's uh, traumatic, not traumatic, because yeah. you know it loses it loses some of its power over you, and and you know all of those. I mean, this is this is, but this is fundamental to how I think of writing. You know, I started writing as a child in an abusive household, specifically triggered by the experience of witnessing my older brother's suicide attempt when I was twelve. So my conception of writing as a way to uh, create. Meaning, or find meaning, or, or find even some form of beauty out of trauma. That's that's been there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, I do know that feeling of oh God, am I still writing about this? <laughs> do I still have to write about this? <laughs> uh, you know, and I and I try to listen to that too. And you know, it's only now I think that enough time has passed that I'm working on projects that don't have anything directly to do with what we had been through. Right. Uh, what we, you know, to some degree are still going through. But as the, the initial trauma recedes in the past, uh, you know, I do feel inspired by things that don't have anything directly to do uh, with cancer. But, you know, I felt like, especially when I wrote that poetry collection, uh, Our Cancers, when I wrote the first draft, which was during treatment and maybe in the months afterwards, you know, the stakes were so high for me. Yeah. And for, for Jessica. So there, I, I wasn't aware of any desire to like get away from it and write about something else. I felt like I need to write about this. I don't know if I'll be alive in the next mm-hmm. six months. Mm-hmm. So what the fuck am I waiting around for? You know right. what I mean? Like it was, yeah, yeah. No, it's a <laughs> it different
1: a, beast. Yeah. It
0: was yeah. a very pressing uh, need, you know. Um, but but yeah, now as enough time has passed, I've been sort of relieved to be writing about different subjects you know. What are you working on now? Oh, you know, different, well, I have a new collection of poetry coming out, which, um, again, the rough draft was really written several years ago, and that's more about sort of the aftermath of cancer. It's called Survivor's Notebook, and it's a collection of prose poems and photographs, Mm. and so I'm just getting that ready for publication next year. The new, the very new things that have nothing to do with, with cancer, you know, one is an adaptation I've been working on, of a memoir or what this writer calls a um, novelistic memoir. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's taken some some liberties. Uh, the, the writer's name is Jay Perini. The book is called Borges and Me. And it's about the writer Jorge Luis Borges. And Jay knew him briefly in 1971 when he was dodging the draft in the U.S. and was getting his Ph.D. at St. Andrews in Scotland. And Borges happened to to be visiting, and Jay was um, charged with being his his chauffeur, basically driving him around the Highlands of Scotland for a week. Uh, and I don't know if you know Borges, but he was this you know charismatic archetypal. He was blind. He was an Argentine uh, sort of metaphysical writer, and uh, as a character was 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 bizarre and funny and eloquent and moving. And so I've been adapting that is a play and mm, I uh, love that. Uh, a few, a few other projects. It's uh, a collection of essays now last year as well.
1: I hate to ask this question. It just, I've never asked this question before, but it sounds like something I want to ask you yeah. right now. If you okay. could give any uh, young aspiring playwrights, some career advice or I mean, someone that was just diagnosed with colon cancer or someone with a spouse was just diagnosed with breast cancer. What advice uh, would you give? What wisdom can you uh, imbue them with at this juncture?
0: I don't know. Now I'm trying to think of advice that would apply to both situations. Uh,
1: and <laughs> I think, and
0: I, you know, it's something that springs to mind and it's probably trite, uh, but, you know, to, to, again, to reach out, you know, to, to reach out beyond your comfort level to other people, to, you know, one thing that the cancer experience did to my writing was I'm less likely to uh, be perfectionistic about what I'm writing. Mm. and uh, I will share my work earlier in the process. Sometimes I still regret that because maybe somebody doesn't really like it because it's not quite finished or something. But, you know, during treatment, I feel like, what am I waiting around for? You know, am I I really going to perfect this, whatever I'm working on ever, or is it more important that I reach out and try to share what what I'm going through and try to connect to other people? Mm. And, you know, I, I think that's true for aspiring artists too, especially playwrights because the theater is so social, right? It's so sociable. Uh, It's my, the plays of mine that have been produced, you know, it's very rarely because a stranger picks up the play and wants to produce it. Mm. It's because artists that I have a relationship with um, and an understanding with and aesthetics in common with, you know, they respond to it and want to work together. And I would say the same thing for you know again the lesson that Jessica, not one lesson that Jessica and I learned again was to was to reach out and ask for help. You know, everybody's different. People we have friends who've gone through cancer in the years since that have kept it very private, and and that and I completely understand that. So it all depends on what works for your psychology and your life and you know, your career. But um, you know, we we really felt like. We were helped, again, by that net, you know, the, of, friend, of friends and sometimes even friends, friends of friends or acquaintances right. who were helping us. And we were lucky enough that our insurance was enough, but, you know, the many people in our situation would would, would, be, would be needing financial help yeah. uh, and, of course, would then need to really reach out in that regard. You know, I just did an interview with, with uh, an organization called Man Up to Cancer. And that um, organization is all about, you know, trying to help men especially who probably, maybe have a harder time. Right. Reaching out um, and asking for help and uh, admitting. And we, you know, we talk about in this culture, we talk about vulnerability in an emotional sense, but you know, when you've just had major abdominal surgery and you're hobbling around your neighborhood with a, with a catheter grinding away in your bladder that's like, delightful y- it can feel like a stiff wind could could end your life you know what i yeah. mean like you feel like it, it's like those nature specials when there's a limping gazelle <laughs> you know and you're you're looking around for that for that um that lion or something yeah so men i think especially can feel like they just have to pull in and and protect right. themselves and, and hole up in the cave and and to some degree, that can work, that self preservation, you know, but I, I think, I think you need, everyone needs, needs uh, support as much as they can find. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think I aced it. I think that applies to, I think you did, <laughs> I think writing. you did
1: ace it. I think that's very beautiful advice. Do you walk around with like fear? like obviously mortality is much more in, in your psyche at this point. And obviously the minute you have kids, everything kind of changes, but do you yeah. find yourself fighting the urge to just walk around anxious all day long or do you just distract yourself or have you do therapy or you just kind of, you know, I mean, cause I'm like, Oh now I appreciate life much more. Or you're like, no, I'm just really just scared all the time that, you know, this is going to come back and I'm going to get that call or, you know.
0: Yeah. It's both. It's both. And it varies day to day. You know, yeah. the longer, the more time that passes, uh, the less there are moments of terror or anxiety. Mm-hmm. But of course, they still happen. You know, when I first finished treatment, I was getting, you know, MRI scans every three months. Right. So that was an experience of three months, a cycle of having the scan, being terrified, having some huge relief. And then slowly the anxiety would build for another three months. Right. Um, now I'm getting scanned once a year.
1: Okay. And,
0: you know, at a certain point, they won't even uh, necessarily do that. So that helps. But, you know, like any trauma, you still have triggers, you know, things yeah. things that can, that can make you feel like you're right back where you were five or six years ago. I do think. You know, I again I mentioned my childhood, you know, when I was thirty two I was disowned by my family, which was another I didn't
1: trauma. know that. What where did that yeah. come
0: from? Oh wow, how long a podcast uh is Oh that? <laughs> wow. This is after
1: I met you, right? This is this is after Brown?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. This was so when I was this would have been two thousand and six.
1: Well, give me the notes. Wait, the, the plot thickens. What, disowned? The Cliff
0: notes? I mean, you know, that's the it's the subject of one, of a play of mine called The House in Scarsdale. I grew up in Scarsdale, New York. Yes. And that play uh, is kind of, a, it was essentially a docudrama because what I did was I, about five years after being disowned without any explanation, I tracked down lots of other estranged relatives
1: hmm.
0: um, because my this parents- This is your,
1: just your parents? Yeah. Your parents ghosted you pretty much? Like inexplicably ghosted yeah. you?
0: Well, there were reasons. I mean, my mother would be probably diagnosed as borderline personality borderline, Right. I felt like there had to
1: be mental illness involved here. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And my father seems to have like a schizoid, paranoid personality mm. type. Okay. There are other things going on, I think. I think there, you know, I, I, um, and uh, the play, I tried to treat it almost like a mystery, you know, just sort of- Yeah why did this happen Uh, is was there is there an easy answer for something like that Um, as opposed to the mystery of mental illness and abuse i mean they both had my mother had a very abusive childhood my father i because my father's schizoid and (laughs) paranoid i never felt like i really knew him or knew his childhood i only knew him as an extremely cold Mm -hmm. verbally and emotionally abusive person so you know on one hand it wasn't a surprise i'd watch them periodically in my life i'd watch them disown or estrange themselves from their siblings from some of my siblings like this wasn't my first rodeo in in a sense okay you were yeah
1: right this is not a
0: it was just my turn it was my turn
1: (laughs) well Um, you would have been upset if you didn't get your turn i feel like everybody wants their turn you know what i mean you'd be like well why not me yeah Yeah, Yeah. my turn,
0: you know, and I think there are other I think there are factors of the fact that I was a writer and that I was writing things that, you know, I wasn't writing memoir, but I was writing things that were close to revealing um, to to yeah, to what our childhood had been like. And uh, I think that must have been part of it, too. But I remember at the time speaking to a therapist about it, um, asking her, well, how long do you think I'm going to feel And even though I was happy in many ways and relieved to have them out of my life? Uh, on the other hand, I had all kinds of almost primal feelings that you have when your family disowns you. These kind yeah. of un- unconscious feelings of of failure or unworthiness or or threat or you know you know just lots of um, you know uh, toxic emotions. And at the time, she she said, "Well, you'll probably start to feel better in about five years." <laughs> and <laughs> And, and, you know, of course, my heart kind of sank because I'm like, am I going to be paying you for five years?
1: You yeah, know? that seems like a, an uh, odd an odd thing to say, too. Like, where's this number coming from? It's with that, that, that theory uh, like, oh, yeah, you get your heart broken half the time that you were together. You'll heal in half the time, you know, so if you're together five, oh, it'll take you two and a half. And I'm like, well, I dated right. a guy for three months. It took me a year and a half to get over him. And then I broke up with my fiance. Right. It took me four minutes. So I don't know. It just feels like these time estimates yeah. are a little odd
0: little arbitrary. I think they are, but I think, you know, it's. it, it seems to have been kind of, I've know i noticed, you know, five years or so after what Jessica and I went through with cancer, there was a shift. There was a change in terms of what you were asking before about feeling anxiety or terror about it. The five years seemed to be enough time to feel like, well, that's another chapter of yeah. my life. It doesn't take away the fear that there could be a new chapter that involves that. And sometimes there's an added anxiety when you feel like, oh, I've put it in the past, but maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe it's, it's, maybe I've been foolish to somehow let my guard down uh, mm-hmm. emotionally, you know, but if I strip away this, the anxiety, yeah, things, things did seem to calm down after about five years and it's incremental anyway. I'm sure after two years, I was feeling better than after one year. You right.
1: Know? Yeah. It, the, the edge kind of slowly, it, I, I don't know. I found with, with grief and i think there is grief in any sort of loss and and trauma i mean certain i think sadly i've had a similar story to you a little well not similar but in terms of just the childhood trauma and i'm like oh i'm still talking about this in therapy 30 40 years later like that stuff embedded and then you you know you i do a lot of like research on trauma and you know, how the body keeps the score, all that kind of stuff. And talk about the vagal, Mm -hmm. you know, vagus nerve, all this stuff that kind of your, what stays in your body and all that talk therapy that's kind of useless because it doesn't treat the visceral symptoms of trauma embedded in your body. But sometimes they'll say stuff like it happened in the womb, right? Or in the friend, then I think of my my kid and stuff that I went through when I was pregnant with him and stuff. I went and I'm like, Oh God, did I fuck up my kid? Because by the time he was three, I'm like, I can't can't worry about that shit. like you do the best you can. Right. And, you know, it's like, oh my God, what have I done when I was stressed out when I was pregnant and I had this and this happened and this right. happened but
0: life like- life is stressful. Life is full of
1: exactly. at the
0: times these junctures of trauma, you know, it's it's impossible to um yes,
1: yes, you know we and do that- everything
0: we can, especially to protect our kids. but but it's-
1: you really do, but I think you also it does give you that acknowledged like recognition that you really do the best you can. You know, I think back, and that's what's allowed me to forgive a lot and let go of a lot of resentment. It's like that people really do the best they can in the moment. Like you wish they could have done better, but it's really beyond their scope of abilities. It's Mm -hmm. very rare that when people fuck up parenting, it's because they make a choice to fuck it up. You know, I feel like all their stuff—it really is stronger than them. Sadly, you know, I talk about this in my show, and and I think that you know, once you go through something like you did, or you know, my brother died four years ago, and. That, you know you go oh, through real sorry. grief and real loss and stuff like the loss with my mom um and it's a continuous loss that's the hard part there's no closure to it it's like this very stretched out kind of process it really mm-hmm. takes you to a different plane of existence and a different mm-hmm. awareness of of life and all its fragility and complexities okay. and darkness too you're like wow like the pain can get really intense i didn't know it could get this and you look at people that have not experienced and some people go through life without experiencing any kind of that kind of grief or loss to that extent you know what I mean and you're like wow they don't yeah. even realize that they're really living on a different plane yeah like people have lived till their 90s never really got that sick never lost anybody <laughs> you know what I mean right, a happy right. life and their biggest trauma was like oh we lost some money one year or whatever it's like it's on a different level I'm like you yeah. don't realize how like clueless and blessed you are you know but yeah. I don't know blessed I mean I don't put a judgment on it i'm you know but
0: but they're lucky yeah it just they're just they've had better better luck and i don't mean that in the magical sense i mean that in the kind of just you know yes things things uh things happen i mean i do think maybe this is a more fatalistic view i do think even if somebody lives to 90 like they've still lost parents and sure no no
1: again and and I remember years ago, and again, it's always, you know, subjective years, years and years ago, I'd just been through a horrible breakup and I did this like weekend retreat. I was really depressed. The guy had been cheating on me and I, I was oh, really no. the darkest. I was watching Battlestar Galactica for five days straight. Like it was dark. Like I had not slept. I was starting to, you know, kind of go into these delusions, yeah. hallucinations. And so we're going around this circle and talking about this traumatic event that we had not told anybody, you know, we're really, mm-hmm. and this was like something that was to be very vulnerable. And I talked about a very violent incident in my home when I was a child. And this other guy talked about his dad beating him. And then this girl, this woman was crying. Mm-hmm. And her biggest trauma was that her parents had turned off a cartoon in, in the in the middle while she was watching without asking her. And I'm not being, faci- this was her, and she said it with a straight face after everybody had already disclosed their traumas. It wasn't like she was the first one.
0: Right, but, right. But this
1: was for her like the defining, Trauma of her childhood that the parents just walked in and shut off the cartoon. I was like, Wow, but then I was like, okay for her this is this is big. it feels a little tone no, deaf, but okay, you know <laughs> like she- no, and
0: it is and it, and it is all relative, you know especially like I again, I think I had a pretty unhappy childhood, yeah. but compared to many people it it's it was not that bad you yeah. know so yeah. it, it's another therapist said to me. At one point, well, yeah, the fact that your family was fucked up, but not even more fucked up, means you're a writer and not like a serial killer or that, addicted to that's heroin. That's a nice way of looking something. at it.
1: Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, it means you're neurotic and you're not psychotic or something. But again, I, I agree, of course, it's all relative. You can only uh, respond to what's happening to you, you yeah. know? especially when you're a child, because you don't have anything to compare it to.
1: That's true. And I think we all go through, you know, I always love the things we say to ourselves to imbue our experiences with meaning, you know, again, I think people that are spiritual and religious have a much easier go because there really is like, Oh, there's meaning we're not aware of. And there's a reason God chose me to go through this. And, and again, it's people try to encourage you. And I guess it does help. If I say to myself, Oh, like the meaning I experienced from caregiving for my mom, it is very meaningful. It's also extremely painful but I am blessed to be able to be able to take care of it that way. Or I'm, you know, where I went through this loss yeah. to grow as a person. And we always say this and it feels like just one big Instagram cliche sometimes. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're blessed to have gone through this. Cause now I'm like, no, I could have been a stronger person without it too. Like there was really yeah. no need, no need.
0: Yeah. I mean, people talk about, there's so much of that sort of toxic positivity with cancer. Um, it can is be that what it's called? Is that the term
1: toxic positivity? I would never heard that before. Yeah.
0: That's, that's what I've heard. Yeah. Sort of this, you know, especially when, when people who are going through treatment encounter people, maybe they've also gone through treatment or right. had cancer or have cancer, or whatever, but who, who have that point of view that you're talking about of saying like everything happens for a reason, <laughs> or they talk about the gift, the gift of cancer, all those oh, things. God. And, uh, you know, that can be tremendously shaming if you internalize that, if you're yeah. having negative feelings, if you're having anger, sorrow, right. grief, it, it can make you feel like what I think what's particularly toxic about it is the idea that like, you know, if being positive means you're more likely to survive, which by the way, is just magical thinking. There's no, there's no scientific proof for that whatsoever. Yes. That implies that everybody who doesn't survive cancer uh, just didn't try hard enough or wasn't positive enough right you know right i've written about this i think it's in one of my essays in that book but you know early on in my treatment i went to an acupuncturist and i'd never been i've never tried acupuncture but i figured i'll why not i'll try everything right within reason so i went to an acupuncturist and one of the first things she said to me was just kind of offhand this belief that colon cancer is caused by people holding on to anger
1: oh god
0: and I, I really, I kind of, you know, I, I got very angry. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, yeah. yell and scream, but I, I told her that was complete bullshit. And what about kids who get cancer? And like, yes. And I, and I stormed out of the, out of the office, you know. But there's so much of that magical thinking, which again is only because two things: one, something like catastrophic illness is so scary to people. Yeah. For good reason. And so uncontrollable.
1: Right. They think they can abuse some control by changing their mental state.
0: Yeah. Like exactly. I've known people they that have been safe.
1: stress balls their whole life and never get cancer. And I've known people, you know, yeah. my dear friend just passed away from cancer three months ago and she was the most relaxed Zen human I'd ever met. So obviously right. I think stress is not good for the body, but I also think that a lot of people live with stress and are okay. You know, I mean, I'm not yeah. saying you should live a stressful life, but you don't freak out if you are stressed. And, right. you know, don't freak out that my kid's going to get fucked up because I was stressed out during pregnancy, like, you know, or or right. like stuff like that that can really mess you up because you're right. It's like it's delegitimizing natural emotions. And I think we stigmatize anger, too. And it's OK yeah. to be angry. And it's always about, you know, working through the anger. Don't get angry, Like, I feel like, oh, I I was never allowed to be angry as a kid. We only had one right. angry person in the house. And so anytime I feel yeah. anger, I feel guilt and I feel shame. And let me hold it in. Let me work through it. Let me work through it. Let me get, you know, why am I angry? And I'm like, dude, right. it's just another, en- you know, like, it's like another emotion like the rest of them. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, well, first of all, I'm very uh, glad to see your face, to see your punim.
0: Yeah, you look me, great. Too. You haven't
1: aged. Cancer is a gift. And I feel oh, like the, the gift you. it's you, given you, you has just been eternal youth here. So the same with you. I mean, I do
0: BB, my daughter, every, every couple of days she, she asks me if she can dye my beard. Uh, so that's, that's the one thing she'd like to see less of a white beard. No, I situation. like
1: it. I like the silver Fox action going um, Dan O'Brien.
0: It's not happening up here. It's only happening here.
1: Is it, Well, that's okay too Very, though. You have a full head of hair still or what happened to your hair?
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, Oh, wow. You still right before, Yeah, wow. Look at that. It's, it's Amazing. Still there, you know. In Israel,
1: everybody is bald. Like, no one has hair. Oh, really? oh my God. Like, hairy backs, hairy chests. <laughs> I don't know if it's the water, maybe it's the stress, but yeah. 90% of Israeli men are the cue balls just walking really? around. So, if you have a head of hair and you're over 40 or over 30 for that matter, yeah, it's you're getting a lot of action. Like, you're getting a lot of action.
0: It's not as quite as, I don't know if you remember, I had a real Irish afro. Yes.
1: Yes, I do. Back in the that.
0: day. And it's not quite that that full. And, uh, you know, like all men my age, hair is growing elsewhere. Like, my yes, ears of course,
1: and- you got the ears. Yeah. The, yeah and my I back
0: know. and all those fun things. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but again, considering what we've just been talking about,
1: you just got to be grateful, involved. man.
0: Yeah, exactly. I don't care. I mean, I
1: wish I cared more about the way I look, you know, as you age. I mean, I'm deal. i at the nursing home every day, you know, just not every day, but Mm -hmm. a few times a week, just dealing with mortality and this like just slow, sad decline of what we're approaching here. And you really are just grateful. And then I look at people sweating Mm this and I do. I've always had perspective. I think when you go through trauma, you have more perspective in life in general. I've always been kind of that like seize the day because we don't know how long we'll be here. We don't like this, you know, always like that. Also, my parents would tell me, like, we may be dead tomorrow. So even when I was a kid, they you did put this like, oh, great. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, but you also, you know, I think, like you said, that semblance of control. We really don't have a lot of control. And you really have to, mm. I hate to say, give it up to the gods. I don't think that. But, you really, you know, it's interesting because you said that you guys were fighters. Like, everybody deals with it differently. I, I, I met a guy in New York whose wife uh, was was diagnosed with breast mm-hmm. cancer, and she decided mm-hmm. to not engage in any treatment. And right. she had three kids or has three kids. Wow. And her husband was supportive of that. I mean, that a beautiful relationship. I mean, I, I probably would have lost my mind. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? At least try and fight it. And, and
0: was it just so advanced that she felt like it would not work? I don't
1: know. I don't want to speak because I don't know, but she did not yeah. want to go through the treatment. Maybe it was advanced, and she said, I'd rather live my life the last you know, a few months I have in a healthy way and not suffer and be debilitated. And it was, a, you know, I mean, the way you spoke about it was very compassionate and beautiful and understanding. I don't think that's a given when your spouse says that to you, you know, but I can respect all decisions made. Other people, you know, on the flip side, I have a a, a friend and it just goes to show you don't, don't, don't trust the, the naysayers. Don't trust the doc. Don't give too much power to the doctors that, you know, was diagnosed with, um, the deadliest form of brain cancer. And they really did give, mm-hmm. you have three, they said, don't even engage in treatments. And they have been on this, es- like this escapade of experimental treatments all over the mm-hmm. world. Like he's wearing this crazy helmet right now that emits this, but it's working. Yeah. It's yeah. working. It's actually working and it's shrinking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's, and so yeah, it's we have like, a lot of
0: friends like that.
1: And, but you know, they also have the resources and some of this stuff is expensive and some of this stuff they're traveling, but he has this, you know, extreme will to live and is not giving yeah. up, like literally the top neurosurgeons are like, don't bother. And I'm like, how right. dare you say to someone, don't bother? Like, what is it, liability? What, what are you afraid of? What are you trying to gain by saying there's no point or giving someone six months to live? What do you like to manage expectations? Like, how does that help? I never understood that. Yeah. Give him false yeah. hope. Fuck it. Let him live with false hope for six months. It's still better than, it's, yeah.
0: you know, it's still justifiably, it's, it's still such a terrifying Illness—it's of course—it's many illnesses, yes. but it's—it's it's such a terrifying disease to people. But it's not—it's so different. One thing Jessica and I have learned, you know, is it's very different than what we remember as kids in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. And you know, we would see parents who had cancer, and it really seems to just be the end. And you know, treatment has changed so much—not uh, just experimental treatments, but the way they—the way they administer chemotherapy. Right. For yes. People. Uh, and the different drugs they use for chemotherapy, the different um technology for surgery. You know, I was told by my liver surgeon, you know, if I had been diagnosed a year or a couple of years beforehand, he wouldn't have been able to help me. Wow. So there but there had been enough advances in the robotics of this surgical technique mm, mm-hmm. that he could resect my liver and remove you know a very small tumor that in in the past it wouldn't have been able to do
1: was this all at ucla or cedars or i sort of had a hodgepodge because we were
0: trying to find the best for each thing so i my colon surgery was at ucla my oncologist is at cedars got it uh and this liver surgeon who's kind of a legendary guy dr hunan fong uh he works uh at city of hope oh wow which is you know in the Los how Angeles do you find area. like do you
1: just kind of google you do the trip advisor like yelp like how do you find like the yeah. top you know
0: yeah I mean again this is where Jessica helped right so much right. you know she was she was talking to so many people so a lot of it is is word of mouth and then of course researching online I think Dr. Fong was through our oncologist who okay, knew it. very well so you know once you're sort of and, of course, I'm sure there are many different doctors who are very good and maybe many different doctors that are not. So, uh, you know, I feel very lucky to to found, for example, Dr. Yes. Dr. Fong, who not only is an amazing surgeon, but in his spare time was setting my poetry to music because he was he had majored at Brown. He went to Brown as ah. an undergrad. Nice. And he, we were excited about that connection. And he majored in like medieval music or something. Of course, I don't he, know. Did. He,
1: of course he, he did. Of course he did.
0: He would do that in his spare time. Um, and, uh, you know, just this incredibly brilliant, overachieving um, guy. So I feel lucky, you know, very lucky in that respect. But these it. are things you can not Nobody should try. mock
1: Brown for like the pass fail options. You know what I mean? We got no. Dr. Fong as exactly. one of our alums. So get over it, Harvard. Exactly. That's all I have to say. Okay. Thank you. I love that. I well, agree. Dan, I, um, please give my love to Jessica. I'm I happy will. she's doing well. And I see your adorable kids on Instagram. People can follow you. Dan O'Brien writer. Is that right? What's your Instagram handle?
0: You know, it's, I have two, the Instagram, that's the professional yes. one is, yes. is at, at by Dan O'Brien.
1: Oh, by Dan O'Brien. Okay. Yeah. And definitely go to just, your local sure. bookstore or if you live in a town that is a uh, bookstore deficient, which is a lot of places on earth, uh, if you have to do Amazon, fine. I mean, I won't. You know, yeah. I just as long
0: yeah. as you get the book. It just I'll get the happy. fucking
1: book, okay? Yeah, just, just get the book. Get the the book. B- <laughs> just get the book. Whatever you want to buy, buy it from Satan. We don't care. Just get the book. Yeah. You look great, Dan. I'm really, I'm really happy to so to it with you. I'm so like it's 10 p.m. here, and I feel I'm. You know, this is aging, right? I get up at 5 a.m. every day. 5 a.m. Oh, for yeah, no reason. Yeah. Just yeah. my body clock, huh? and I meditate. That's it. I meditate for like nine yeah. minutes, and I feel great. Just the thoughts and emotions oh, yeah. just walk past 10 p.m.
0: Past you, should, you should be asleep by now.
1: Yeah, I know. Exactly. Well, anytime um, you do a play reading, I'd love to do one. It's been over 20 years since we worked together. More. No, what was crazy. the name of the play we did with your Irish monologues?
0: That was called Boxing the Compass.
1: Oh, my God. Yes. Boxing the Compass. Fond and that reference.
0: actually just came out. I published a book during really? the pandemic of, of, of monologues of mine. It's on my website, but that's that's in there. And your name is in there because it lists the first production. Who was
1: it? Was it Lucas Fleischer was in that? Who else was in that? Yeah, Lucas. Can I tell you um, something very embarrassing about that night for me? Sure. I don't think I've told anybody this. So yeah, I was wearing, I think, a white wedding dress, correct? I was wearing a white dress of some sort. That makes sense, yeah. And the, the stage lighting was harsh. I think we were like in the production workshop. I don't remember where we did it. Yeah but I discovered afterwards and at some point I had crouched and you could see my underwear and I had gotten my period and I did not know. And so I, I think I that. was just like a bloody mess down there. And as I was oh doing the God. monologue, the stage light, like just the big, you know, was just what? flashing right on my, I have no memory of those. the blood. So I hope that you don't recall that. but I recall that very distinctly. And I remember going, Oh my God, I hope, I hope nobody I noticed no, that I was, no, but
0: I don't, Think anybody told me, and I have no—I okay. don't think I would have okay. remembered. It seems like maybe they thought remembered. it was
1: like you know, like some sort of you know Lars von Trier moment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Like blood wedding. So maybe-
0: there was a lot of there was a lot of intense brown student yes. theater happening with that involved body bodily fluids, body so, fluids, and yeah. I think that
1: would par for the course, right? So yeah, exactly. Just wanted to share People that yawned,
0: they yawned, and said, "Oh no, another <laughs> another actor gets their period at Brown." <laughs>
1: <sighs> On that note, uh, Dan O'Brien, this was a pleasure speaking to you and yeah, um, thank you. we'll be in touch and I stay healthy, stay safe and stay neurotic, not psychotic.
0: Thanks. You too. It's great to see you.